Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means two things. Excellent for business, and really it means Easton, Fury, Belmar. Here are my two partners, John Easton and Adam Belmar. Good day. Good day to ye. Here at the Fury Theory Podcast, we talk about a lot of things, like the Washington Capitals. Big game last night, John, right? Big game. Big game. Solid. Coming back to Washington for games three and four. Series tie 1-1. The first ever Stanley Cup win. Stanley Cup final win. Right. Yes. Uh, We also talk about wine. We don't have any wine today, but someday we'll have wine. And, of course, we talk about politics. It's a theory mostly about politics, Adam Belmar. That's right. Just like the Fury Theory blog, which has been around for so long, theories about many things, but mostly about politics. So let's get to the theories. Theory one, the Kim Summit. No, not that Kim. Kim Kardashian. Of course. Who made a great visit to the White House, meeting with President Trump, talking about all things prison reform. A vested interest, perhaps, with Kim Kardashian. She's married to Trump buddy, Trump bestie, Kanye West. Uh, this is one of Jared Kushner's big things. Adam Belmar, you worked in the White House. Does a summit with Kim Kardashian help or hurt this president? I am going to reject the word summit. Okay, <laughs> there was a private meeting in the Oval Office of which there is. You saw you saw what I did there, though. I right? did. <laughs> There's one picture. One of the greatest headlines, John Easton, that I saw out of this was uh, people referring to Kim Kardashian as Kim Thong Un. <laughs> Kim Thong Un. Anyway, listen. No, it doesn't cut down, in my opinion, on the president's. Um, uh, reputation, reputation, or his seriousness. He is open to everything, and this is legitimately a very strong and important issue. It's one that uh, needs to be addressed. And quite frankly, if he took some time to do it, um, in, in light of the other pardons that have happened most recently from the president, he's putting some attention to it. I wouldn't call it a summit, and I don't think it downgrades. Uh, if you didn't take the president seriously before now, and you should have, uh, this doesn't hurt or help. John Easton, you are a political operative. You have run campaigns before. You understand the value of celebrity. also understand that sometimes... Too much celebrity can be a bad thing. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Kim non-summit summit? Well, first of all, I don't think that we're going to get uh, tired of celebrities at, at the at the West Wing or the White House under this administration. I think this may have been the first A-lister, maybe the second. We had Sylvester. Is Stallone, she an A-lister? Uh, the media thinks so. In oh, a Trump world, so let's I would let's, say let's go a... with that. So, but what, what you got to love is the reaction of the sort of the media at large on this. Some who take it for what it is, which is Kim Kardashian, which is the queen of really nothing. I mean, I just queen of being the queen, queen of, I right? Don't know. She's one of the queens of social media. She's one of the queens of right. Yeah, you know, so she's I, a brilliant entrepreneur. Well, she is. She's made a lot of money. By basically being well, being a reality TV star. By be- basically being the daughter of Robert Kardashian, who was OJ's lawyer. I don't even know that anybody even knows who the hell her yeah, father that, was. But right. that's but that's she, how she's, she's Bruce Jenner's step or Caitlyn Jenner's step. <laughs> but the spectator sport here a little bit is just to watch sort of the media intelligence yeah, and how they react. You have CNN reporter Jim Acosta saying. 
I just it's you know, it's shameful that the White House has to be more serious than this. This is not serious. And then then you have the New York Post uh, page six this morning. <laughs> oh no! It's just beautiful. The other big ass summit. <laughs> one Adam already mentioned the other one, which was that Kim Thong Un pitches Prez on prison reform, and Trump. Meets Rump. The other big ass summit. I oh mean, my God. You know, this is, you know, New York Post, they don't, they don't, uh, nobody's sacred, you know, it, whether it's Trump or Obama or Bush, right? It, they just do, they do it to everybody. And this is the kind of thing you would expect. This yep. is funny. And, and, and it was a light thing. I, I think anybody taking the Kim Kardashian thing too seriously going to the White House should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, no, we're not going to talk about Roseanne Barr today, apparently, but that is funny. Roseanne. Not funny. Nor is Samantha B. We're not going to talk about We can talk about Roseanne if you want, but I think this is more fun. No, I would never bring it up. Um, I will say I will <laughs> nice. say that celebrities do have some pull with this White House. Think about Sylvester Stallone. You know, and he got this uh, resolution passed, or this uh, Jack Johnson, who is one of, these, one of the great boxers of all time. Uh, oh, was he behind that? He was behind it. He was on the guy who wanted to push that. The he pardon. pushed it. Yep. He pushed the pardon, and, you know, that, this is a big policy change. I mean, you know, the, the Department of uh, – the Attorney General certainly didn't, didn't want him to do that. The Department of Justice, President Obama never did it. And then Sylvester Stallone talks to the president. The president says, yeah, we're going to pardon this guy. And, you know, that's, that's the value of celebrity. Don't you think? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And uh, I don't want to go too far down that road except to say that uh, just as we were coming on the air here at the Fairy Theory Podcast – there was word today that the president is considering a pardon for disgraced mm-hmm. Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. I can't make heads or tails of that. And Martha Stewart. Well, sure. I mean, anyone who had anything to do with The Apprentice. So we had he's, he's Scooter, Scooter Libby, <laughs> Rod Blagojevich, Martha Stewart. And didn't they pardon someone else today? Um, somebody. Well, they was, haven't pardoned uh, Rob they just presaged But I, I thought I thought there was someone else that they just pardoned. Anyway, a lot of pardoning going on. I'm par- I pardon the inter- interruption. I'm sorry that we, you know, brought this topic up. But I do think that Kim Kardashian is a fascinating uh, figure in the entertainment business. She's also kind of a reflection of where America's going. It's celebrity based. It's you know very diverse, um, and it's fixated on wealth. And let her use her celebrity to push a, uh, a priority, a, a policy priority of hers. That's fine. You know, that's uh, something that's been done all the time. And, you know, through, you know, administrations as far back as we can count. And I think it's going to continue. And to, to add to this point, this was you talked about the serious thing. Jared Kushner was pushing this because he didn't like what the Justice Department, what they did to his daddy. Right. So that's fascinating. Well, you know what? I think that there are very personal understandings of this problem that, that stretch to many different families. But it is a big, big issue. And when you saw the White House do a little tiny closer to a, a summit, it was a little bit more of a thing with Van Jones on CNN. This goes back two weeks when the prison reform legislation passed the House of Representatives. It's going to struggle in the Senate, I understand. But this is a serious issue. It's one that is largely bipartisan. We did, it would appear, largely overreach in terms of mandatory sentencing in the Clinton era. That was for a reason. And now we probably need to do more to pull it back. So I'm enthusiastic about taking on smaller policy issues. First of all, there's, there's a couple of big issues here. Uh, first, uh, 
we have too many people in prison who are learning how to be good criminals and not learning how to be good citizens. Uh, the second thing is there are a lot of people in prison who shouldn't be in prison for drug offenses. Uh, and you, taking people off the streets who are dangerous, I think, makes perfect sense. But putting people who committed minor drug crimes in prison costs taxpayers a lot of money, John Easton, and we need money. Well, and I think that we're, we're watching this slowly evolve uh, before our eyes now with the opioid crisis and how localities are treating those who are getting that terrible cycle of op- opioid addiction and what it does you know, with them in the criminal courts. And so there, there are more family courts are popping up to deal with their kids and, you know, and, and, and to get them a second chance and to make, see if they can get out of their addiction and back on the right track again. I, I just think that they've, they've – and, and a lot of this came out of the crack epidemic and how we handled that. And we've learned a lot of lessons from that. And the opioid epidemic is so bad right now that I think we're going to be trying a lot different things than prison. Of, yep. course, of course, there's a little bit of element of race there. I mean, no the question. Opioid no question. epidemic is mostly middle-class whites. Crack was something that impacted African-Americans you know, terribly. And when a lot of the sentencing – so sentencing is the real reason – sentencing reform is the real reason that, that this prison reform legislation is getting hung up in the Senate. I, and, I, and we need to do something about sentencing that, reform. That is true, and I think anybody who's been paying attention to this needs to recognize that it was President Obama – who worked very hard and quietly on this issue of sentencing reform. A lot of his pardons and commutations were in this space of people who were nonviolent, drug convicts who had been in jail for a long time. I give the president, the former president, a lot of credit starting this conversation. We need to continue it. Well, I think that's fine. Um, I'm going to give the current president a lot more credit if he can get Jeff Sessions and others. Jeff Sessions is so fired. Well, he might be. We'll see. I don't think so. We'll see if that's going to be hard for the farmer. Anyway, theory two, the long game. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is just about ready to pass Bob Dole as the longest-serving Republican Majority Leader in the history of the Senate. A huge accomplishment for the senator from Kentucky. Mitch McConnell wrote a book a couple about a year ago called The Long Game, uh, talking about when he was a child afflicted with polio, how important it was for him to fight back. And he's developed this theory about the long game where you, you, don't, you, you, you battle over a long period of time to make real change. And what he's doing as Senate Majority Leader John Easton uh, is the long game, especially when it comes to judicial appointments. Talk a little bit about Mitch McConnell and his stewardship of the Senate. So when I – read that he was going to surpass Bob Dole as the longest-serving Republican leader, it got me thinking, what, what, what makes a really effective leader in the Senate? And, and I think, to me, it comes out you have to be a, a shrewd Senate floor tactician. You have to be a very shrewd political tactician. And I think you have to, uh, have, you have to be trustworthy. And I, I don't mean just among, you know, within your own caucus – but with the other leader, with the Democratic leader. And I think you have to have really great staff. And Mitch McConnell has all of those in spades. And I remember one of the senators that I worked for, uh, we're leading up to re-election, a re-election campaign, and he sat down with us and walked through everything 
you know, not only just money and polling, that kind of thing, but, but the ground game and, you know, how organized everything was. On, I mean, you just, it was a check-in to make sure that we really had our act together. So when you see Mitch McConnell and his interest in Senate races across the country, you realize, obviously, it's because he cares so deeply about the party and he cares so deeply about the Senate majority. But in order to be effective as an effective leader, I think he knows he needs to know what's going on in those. And if that senator needs some help, he's going to give him some help. And if that if it's an open race and he wants to tilt the scales a little bit, he's going to do that as well. I think I think he has done that. And I think what he's done in the last year on some of these Senate races has been uh, really impressive. And And a shout out to his staff and who's excellent. And, and I have to say, he's also lucky in that he's got Chuck Schumer now to deal with, not Harry Reid. And Harry Reid was a its own kind of effective leader. But the trust between the two of them broke down completely. And I think that Chuck Schumer is somebody who I actually think he wants to get some things done. And he's a guy that, that Mitch McConnell could actually trust. That makes Mitch McConnell's life so much easier and just happier to, to, to lead. So I agree with all what you said, John. I will say that McConnell is tough. You need to be tough in this position. He's also completely realistic. He knows exactly what can and can't pass. And he's fearless because he will tell people, no, that's not going to work. Because he, he, all he cares about as the floor leader is the schedule. And he manages the schedule. And he's putting all his eggs in the judicial bas- basket right now. Adam Bellart, uh, Mitch McConnell kind of has a face for radio. Um, he's not a particularly, you know, great on TV. He's a television producer. Would he be your dream politician? No, absolutely not. I spent years as a booker uh, uh, at ABC News and, you know, the objective of a television conversation in most instances is a dynamic speaker who's going to make news. He's a quiet power broker within Washington. He is someone that people look to to book for Sunday shows when he'll occasionally get out there and do it. You most often see him at the uh, Ohio Clock or uh, you know in the in the Senate studio. But one of the things about McConnell, I think, is, is, is what you said. He's very tough. He's principled. And that is something that we saw in spades when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland following mm-hmm. the passing of Supreme Court Justice Nathan Scalia. Because the, the supposition was the Republicans robbed the president of his court nomination. And I think Broadly, that's a fair statement. Uh, there's a lot of good reason in politics and precedent that went behind it. The election vindicated uh, the Senate majority leader in that. Um, but quite frankly, uh, he is just not the dynamic face of the Republican Party that one would want to have. But he is a steadfast moral leader who is absolutely uncompromising when it comes to his agenda in the Senate. Yeah, I, I don't think um, he's the he's the perfect legislative leader in the sense that the perfect legislative leader is not someone who's on TV talking big thoughts. He's the person who's in the back rooms cutting important deals. And at the end of the day, John Easton, that's what is the hallmark of a good legislative leader. It's not what you say before the cameras. It's what you say to get the deals done. That's that's really true for Mitch McConnell in particular. And I think it's true to get um – to where you want to go. And one thing that I've observed over the years with him that I respect so much is that 
what he cares deeply about is the success of the Senate Republican caucus and and also putting points on the board as they say getting wins getting victories actually passing legislation i think he cares about the institution so much that he's not willing to see some of it melt down let's say over legislative filibuster i think he has been very clear he wants to maintain that because i think he believes that that is a a a very important to the future of the senate but here's just another piece of, of of mcconnell is really important to bring up and that is that um you know in in the Senate, I mean, he's been unopposed for for a, for majority leader time and time again, and and part of it is because I, I go back to that that the trust factor with him is very very high among his members, but second, what he just can't tolerate it seems for me is he's never told me this, but it seems like he's never he can't tolerate is grandstanding from within his caucus for real no real gain, but I think what he sees. <laughs> is um, that it only hurts the caucus and the chance for success. I would make two observations here. One, you should really read a very interesting column written by George Will about Mitch McConnell. I find it interesting because in that column, George Will talks about how many accomplishments that the leader has with Donald Trump. And George Will hates Donald Trump. So in, in one way you have, you know, Will talking up all these great conservative accomplishments that he would never mention in any other column because he hates Trump so much. Uh, and so that was, that was actually good on, uh, on George Will and good for Mitch McConnell. The second point I would make is the hard right hates Mitch McConnell. And he's done so much for the hard right. He's probably one of the most conservative majority leaders in the history of the, of the Senate. And yet the hard right hates him because he is not someone who makes outrageous statements all the yep. time. He's not someone who, who's uh, – he's no Rush Limbaugh. He's the real deal, and I think the conservative movement has to get its collective head out of its collective ass and understand what matters most. It's not loud words. It's getting stuff done. Well, let's face it. I mean those uh, individuals on the, on the, on the far right – that you speak of, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, and many others who have, whether it's blogs or they have radio shows, those, those, those folks have their place in our system. You know, they, have their, they play their roles. Mitch McConnell is playing his role, and he is perfect for that role. Right. I think having some of, of, of these you know, from the far right, these very loud and obnoxious voices in, in the Senate, leading the Senate, that just doesn't work. Right. I mean, that just won't work. And your point is good, one, and it's quite Adam. But I was just your point is good. One. Everyone has a role to play, and our role to play here at the Fury Theory is to bring truth out in any way we can. Adam right? Belmar, you bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> theory three: Does anyone really know what time it is? Does anyone really care? Yes, that is an old song by Chicago, and I want to make one thing perfectly clear: I don't care about RussiaGate. I don't care about Robert Mueller. I don't care about Russian collusion. Anytime it shows up on anywhere on television, I turn the television off. That's why I'm watching so much Golf Channel. I don't watch MSNBC. I don't watch CNN. I watch CNBC because I want to know what the market's doing. But Russiagate bores me to tears. Adam Belmar, that's where I am. Where are you on Russiagate? 
Uh, you and I have been uh, on different sides of this from the day that Comey got fired, and uh, I think it's your right not to care and to want to turn it off. It is significantly important. It is a challenge to our democracy. When I think about Russiagate, I'm thinking about um, the meddling that occurred in our election, the future uh, attempts to manipulate the U.S. democracy and electoral process by our enemies in a style that I'm not saying we're wholly unused to. We've used covert methods to uh, try and over and over again, including right. including in Russia. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, but when I think about this. That's what I think about. When you think about it, you think about it uh, in terms of the three-ring circus that is the hyper-Trump focused and the pushing of collusion and all of this. I understand where everyone's coming from, but I am fully committed as a patriotic American to seeing this through. I want to know what the hell happened. Does Putin believe – do you believe Putin put Trump in at the White House? Not at all. I think that's bullshit. Okay. Um, But I also think that there was a lot of crazy shenanigans going on. Uh, within the, the three-lettered agencies of the U.S. government uh, before the election, during the election, and possibly still now that we're coming to know about. And uh, I just don't know who to trust anymore. Well, and I think that goes to part of my thing is, you know, I, there's so many different narratives here. Some are spun by the White House. Some are spun by James Clapper, who I th- don't think is very credible. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. Some are, sp- are spun by the Senate Intelligence Committee, which, you know, has its own issues. The the um, Devin Nunes, who I like a lot, he's obviously got his own view of this. Adam Schiff, uh, Adam Belmar, or, or John Easton, Adam Schiff has this um, kind of made f- famous by basically spinning the conclusion that uh, Russia, you know, is uh, doing everything. Donald Trump is doing everything the Russians want him to do, which I don't think there's any evidence of. What's your view of all of this Russiagate? Uh, like you said, it has so many angles. But if you if you really take a look at what Robert Mueller, the special counsel, has uh, dug up on the collusion part, I mean, there's been no um, there have been no indictments there. Yes, there have been indictments on 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 um, some other Paul issues. Man- Paul Manafort, yeah, Paul Manafort, uh, the lobbyist, and 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 where you know he's done some lobbying for foreign governments. He didn't register and. And but that took them deeper into Manafort and and his his business dealings, which apparently were very shady. So I, I think that the but, problem. But, John, John, but everyone knew that about. Paul well, right, Manafort. exactly. I, I think he's getting some indictments, but they they're not related to the original mission of collusion with Russia. So park that for a second. The the other part of this, though, that where I, the reason why I think that we're going to be dealing with this for quite some time is is because really with Donald Trump, it's live by your lawyers and die by your lawyers. And he is so, you know, he's so legal oriented in turn or lawyer oriented from the time that, you know, he was, has been gotten into real estate. Everything has been about intimidation, threaten, sue, uh, win, uh, plea, whatever. And, and I think what happens whether his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, or now it's Rudy Giuliani, it's just drama and drama. And so the press who is, just obsessed with having their Watergate, right? They think that every day they may be getting their their, their smoking gun. Um, I think that this is just going to continue. I really think that we have no good idea, even the journalists who are as t- on top of this as anybody could be, what the whole puzzle is uh, about what Mueller's up to and what he's found. Yeah. Everything he's done that we can see has been in furtherance 
I would believe, I assume, uh, towards finding all of the puzzle pieces and turning them up and using leverage along the way. But I also think that part of this, quite honestly, has to do with the President of the United States and his unpreparedness in general for the office. Not that he didn't have the experience or the wherewithal to do it, but he was so out of his depth at the beginning about what he said, who he said it to, when he fired Comey. You know, there was an article out last week, John Fury, uh, or, or a, a blog post uh, that referenced repeated conversations between Bill Gates uh, and Donald Trump, where Donald Trump would repeatedly ask Bill Gates in meetings, "Is there what's the difference between HIV and HPV? You know, HIV being the, uh, the virus that... Uh, uh, morphs into AIDS and HPV, the human papillomavirus, for which there is a um, uh, <clears throat> antidote. Uh, uh, yeah, a vaccine, vaccine that's encouraged to be used by male and females at younger ages across the world and can help with this. The president is very smart, and he's incredibly savvy, more savvy perhaps than I've ever given him credit I think he's for. more savvy than smart. Okay, that's fine. But my, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't preclude him from saying silly things and asking questions that normal, typical leaders at this level wouldn't ask. He's made mistakes. He may yet get well, kicked right. in the shins for it, but this still has a bigger I, listen, total I think, feel about Russia that we need to explore, so I care about it because of that. Well, what I, this is what it's going to devolve into. It's eventually going to devolve into a probe into Michael Cohen paying off Stormy Daniels because all of these independent counsels ultimately end in some sort of freaking sex scandal that no one cares about. When you say devolve, do you honestly mean that you think it's... That's, probably the, that's probably the only indictment they get is that Michael Cohen... Okay. that's what you're saying. I understand. Because there's no, there's no collusion. And here's the problem with that is, to, to Adam's point about, I think that the real, real important issue with this is how much did Russia and how did Russia influence our election? I, I too, don't think that they tipped the scales enough to elect a president in our country. It's just not... It, our, our, our system is too deep for that. But I do think that we should be looking at that more than we are. And the problem is is the press gets run off on these goose chases on every new thing that Mueller might find or who he is talking to. He's talking to so-and-so, his former you know, tenant or something, and all of a sudden they all swoop over and talk to them. It's just it, it misses the core element. The press should be focused more on the actual you know, Russia influence. And if Mueller – should determine at some point that, you know, Russia collusion is or is not really a problem here with with President Trump and his inner circle. If it's not, they got to let this thing go. I think the biggest scandal. Uh, amen. The biggest scandal on this was when the KGB came and stole all of Hillary Clinton's plans to grow the economy because that was what ultimately. Steer, steer that she didn't have them anymore? She, she, yeah. that was your <laughs> she did more to lose this election than anyone else. This, was, this is all fantasy land by a Republican and Democratic establishment that did not want Donald Trump. And I, I'm of the establishment and can't believe that this guy won and has to blame someone because it couldn't be them, couldn't be their pollsters, and couldn't be their millions of dollars they spent on Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and... Hillary Clinton and, and somebody from the establishment. Trump won because he had a better economic message and he had a better – he connected with voters. And this whole Russia collusion thing is just fantasy. And uh, we got to get off it. Now, I will say one last thing. 
it's helping the president in one way. Because we're not talking about the fact that health care premium is going up. We're, talking, we're not talking about you know, some of the economic problems that, that really need to be addressed by this White House. Uh, we're not really talking about immigration reform. We're talking about Russia collusion. So maybe this president wants to have this. It's kind of a wash. We're not talking about his victories either. Well, I know. I know. I, I think that, uh, that John Easton makes a very incisive point. It cuts both ways. It is a bit of a wash most recently, especially in the way that you just put it. But I, but I, I will say this. The president is very, very nimble. That's not news to anybody. But the transition to using Spygate as a, uh, a hashtag or, or you know, a way to describe this, he is constantly stoking the fire in the most adept way. And, um, you know, there's just really no pairing. He has no equal when it comes to yeah. master manipulation. And we've never seen this world. before, ever. Yeah, well, we, we, the, this presidency is completely unprecedented. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I think that... The president – the thing about it is that everyone knew the, what this president was about before they elected him. This is the president we got. This is the, what the president uh, – It's so true. The, the nothing has changed. This is not some sort of Manchurian candidate that, no. that has changed his stripes once he became president. He's the same goofball he was before he got elected. And you know what? He's doing a pretty good job for a goofball. He's doing a pretty good job, I would say, in, in total – for anyone, uh, this is a very difficult, almost impossible job from just a physical standpoint. Keeping up with uh, the 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 needs and the pace of the presidency, he does it like a spry child. I am always impressed with how he keeps himself and the way he portrays himself. I don't agree with a lot of things that he says. I'm very up with the agenda, but he impresses me on that scale alone. For as much fast food as he eats, he has got amazing energy. <laughs> Amen to that. All right, guys, we're going to f- uh, conclude this segment of the Fury Theory podcast by asking Adam Belmar, what is he buying or selling today? All right, I'm going to cut to the tight shot speak directly to you, the Fury Theory <laughs> viewer, as I talk to you about my buy this week. Somehow, some days, some years, the script spelling bee just falls off the, ra- the radar screen. It used to be a much bigger deal, and then occasionally during the finals, there are one moment or two that will break through in the evening news. But this week, I'm buying spelling, I'm buying spelling bees, and I'm buying scripts. It is nearly a century of great competition and academic rigor surrounding the spelling bee. It's true that many of the past previous winners have been uh, Indian American and Heritage. Many have been homeschooled, but they're diversifying how you get there. You don't always have to be your regional spelling bee winner. There's a new way in. I love it. I love the families. I love the emphasis on what it is to try and be a scholar as a young child. I buy the spelling bee. B-U-Y, B-U-Y, B-U-Y. Bye, bye, bye. He spelled it. He spelled it. Uh, John Easton, I, I like that. That's a good one. I can't spell anymore. That's why we have spell check. John Easton. You all probably thought I was going to buy the Washington Capitals, didn't you? <laughs> because they are rolling. And uh, I think that um, that that save by Braden Holtby last night, a lot, of people are, a lot of people are saying that's probably the greatest save in, in Washington Capitals history, and it, and it may prove to be the case, uh, especially if they win the series. But I'm going to buy that today the college – The Women's College World Series began. It started. And um, some great teams, University of Oklahoma, Washington, UCLA, but 
most importantly, the University of Oregon. And as we were heading into this to start this podcast, the University of Oregon Ducks were up on the Arizona State Sun Devils five to two, bottom of the third. So I, I am looking for the Ducks to advance uh, today, and I am heading tonight. Uh, tonight I'll be on the campus of the University of Oregon for meetings all day tomorrow, and I am excited to join um, the Duck Nation for some uh, women's college World Series. Go Ducks! Victories. Go Ducks. I have two, buy, I have two buys. One buy, uh, and this is kind of a buy from way back when. I'm reading this biography of Ulysses S. Grant by Ron Chernow. Uh, what a great guy. Ron Chernow? No, uh, Ulysses, <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant. I would read this He's book about you. He's a pretty good guy, Great too. book, uh, great historic figure, man from – born in Kentucky, moved to Illinois, like another famous figure in our Who history. Was that? Who was that? Uh, anyway. Um, great, one of the greatest generals in American history. Read that book. Uh, read about Ulysses S. Grant and then read his – own autobiography, which is one of the greatest autobiographies ever written by anyone in history. Um, secondly, I'm going to buy Juan Soto, hmm. who is the new left fielder for the Washington Nationals, who's beheading somewhere close to 400. He's 19 years old, might be one of the greatest players we've seen since Bryce Harper came to, uh, came to Washington. Um, unbelievable player, unbelievable athlete. 19 years old. This is why the Washington Nationals are going to win the World Series this year. And you can, you can in part, thank General Manager Mike Rizzo for a lot of these uh, players that uh, are, are coming into their own now. We don't just uh, talk the talk. We walk the walk. We are ticket holders. I think all of us have seen Soto out there this season. He's quite impressive. Very impressive. Um, I've not seen him. I've only been to two games this year. Um, that's called bad scheduling on my part. But we uh, love the Washington Nationals here and the Washington Capitals. Thank you for joining the, the Fury Theory Podcast. <laughs> the Redskins uh, still suck. Um, oh, come on. Sorry. Uh, and uh, to Topher Cushman, we hope you're watching. Um, have a nice day and good weekend. And thank you again for watching our podcast. EFB means excellent for business. What happened to our ending? <laughs>